Last Sunday we had a guest speaker, his name was Willie Simons, and he talked about this whole concept of freedom in Christ. And he talked about the Jews, how they in their day thought they were free people. They were the ones who had the, the laws of God and they were the chosen ones. They were special people. And then Jesus comes and tells them, no, you're not free. You're slaves to sin. They didn't like that. It was insulting to them and it was abrasive. It didn't work very well. The question I want to ask us today, do we have freedom? And I, tr- I just want to say it this way. Let's keep our freedom. Or I have titled my sermon called, Keep Your Freedom. Keep your freedom because it can be lost. It can be compromised. It can be given away. It can be traded. It can be stolen. So I want to ask this morning this question. Are you free? Are you free? I don't mean free from having tickets and the law courts and free from a prison sentence. Because freedom, once it's lost, the alternative is slavery. Satan is a mastermind of trying to find ways to lure us in. And things that are not even sin, things that are not wrong, but they can become the gateway or the avenue or the roadway into which he draws us in. And almost anything can become bondage to us where he doesn't care if we go off to the right or to the left. As long as he gets us to a point where Jesus is not center anymore, that's all he cares Once Jesus is not the center anymore, then he has us where he wants us because then he's in control. Then he's at the wheel of our life. There's an interesting little book, one chapter long in the Bible. It's called Jude, written by a man named Jude. And we have some idea of who he was. He was, it's believed he was the brother to James. He was a leader in Jerusalem and And when Mary and Joseph had the baby Jesus, well, Mary had the baby Jesus. Later on, they had other children, and James was one of those children, and they believe that Jude also was one of them. Now, I won't go into the details, the nuts and bolts of that. That's not my point this morning. But Jude was a was a leader in the church community, and he wrote a letter. Last last Sunday, Willie Simons talked about freedom in Christ, and in this morning, we're going to talk about keeping that freedom. And Jude does not mention the word in his letter. He doesn't mention the word freedom. At least now I can't think of it that he did. I read it last week as I was preparing. And I want to focus on that one key topic. Why he talks about why it's important that we contend for the faith. The question that we want to look at is, what is freedom? Well, basically, it's voluntarily and by choice living within the confines and boundaries and disciplines that the Lord Jesus set for us. That's what it is. And are we doing that? And how serious is it that we do this? So I want to begin reading verse 3. And we could read the introduction, but I won't take time. Our time usually is one hour in the morning. And so by 11, we want to be out of, by 10, we want to be out of here. And so, so we can go ready for the next service. But I just want to, let's start reading verse 3. Jude chapter 1 verse 3. Here's, he's given his greetings and he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that's his favorite topic to talk about, and many pastors would say that, is I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
what he would like to preach about, what he would like to write about, what he would like to talk about was good. But he said, there's, a, there's an urgent message, there's an urgent matter I need to address instead in this letter. This passage here is a bit like when you drive down the road and there's this buzzer going off in your dashboard. You hate when that engine light goes on or when that beeping sound comes and, or maybe you're, you're cooking something and you got something in the stove and then the fire alarm goes and you're, you're some, okay, this is not normal. And so he's talking about something that he would prefer not to have to talk about. He would prefer to talk about our common salvation, but there's something else more pressing, more urgent right now. We've got to talk about that first, he says. The word contend, he says, found it necessary to write appealing means pleading with them. To contend means it, it's not, it's not something easy. Contend means to strive. If you've ever seen a, a video or maybe you've gone to these, which I'm not saying, I'll leave that out, but a wrestling match. You know how hard those guys try to get the other guy down? They're not half-hearted. They go all out. If you've been into high school and have been in these wrestling matches, you know how hard the guy tries to get the other guy to the floor. He says, contend, strive, wrestle for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You know what the sad truth is, though? For many people, faith is nothing but a yawn. Yeah, I was raised Christian. That's it. That's it. There's nothing more. Why is this so critical? Why is this so important? He says, I want to talk about salvation, this common grace that we have, but I found it necessary to, to, to appeal to you to contend for the faith. What's the big deal? Let's read verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. There's a bondage that's happening, that's forming, which you guys need to be aware of, he says. And it's robbing them of their freedom. And oftentimes people think it's what gives them freedom. It's the exact opposite. And we are not told who the recipients were of the letter. At least I didn't find it. I didn't pay attention to that. But he says certain people have crept in. They didn't announce what their intentions were. But they're in. And he's saying the church is not pure anymore. It's been contaminated. You know, it's one thing to be careful something doesn't get contaminated to keep the, to keep the, uh, the, the unclean stuff out. And it's one thing to do that, but once the contamination gets in, then the whole batch has to be purified. Sometimes it can't be something that's thrown out. In the manufacturing business, when they manufacture food, when they, when they have these machines that are mass producing whatever they're producing, and all of a sudden contamination gets in, what do they do? They call, have a recall. All of a sudden there's a recall. Now you have to dump a whole lot of stuff because we don't know. Maybe it got contaminated. That's why it's so important to keep the contamination out. So the church is supposed to be a free functioning body of believers worshiping Christ. And he says, some people have crept in unannounced, unnoticed. He says they were designated for this condemnation. The condemnation he talks about, and I don't know what all that includes, and I won't spend a lot of time, but they're not saved. They're condemned people. God is aware. God is. God is. No, God knows this. And what this means for the church means we need to be watchful, 
We don't need to worry so much about what will happen to them as we need to be careful that they do not get control and become part of the church. He describes them as ungodly people. But wait, he says they're in the church. So the question could be asked, is it possible for ungodly people to be in the church? Yes, it is. A person may not love God, may not love Jesus, may not love their fellow neighbor, but they may still come to church. They may even be baptized. They may even be members. Not just that, he says, they pervert the grace of God, our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they do. It's all about the self. All about what makes me feel good. The carnal lifestyle takes precedence. It takes over. They're focused on what makes them happy, what makes them feel good. The worldly culture around them, that's, that's their home. But they've come in and they're now contaminating the church. And it's sad but true. And in my line of work as a pastor, I hear stories even of pastors. They'll engage in immoral practices, lifestyle choices that are clearly described as sin, adultery, what have you. And they justify, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And I could talk about a whole, but I'll just talk about my line of work. They basically worship self, themselves as their own God. Well, I feel this is right for me. Well, how deep does this go? And we live in a time when almost all moral boundaries are being compromised. And if you feel like it, you should be able to do it. And no restrictions are hardly any Well, there's a few still left, but almost none. And back then when Jude wrote this, the lifestyle was not that different from ours. If you read about the moral climate, the moral environment that they had back in then, those days, it wasn't that different than ours. But one thing was different. One thing was different. And I want us to, to note this. If you read history... The church, by and large, not for not. There were some churches. If you read Revelation, Laodicea was a was a corrupt one. There's a few others who were struggling, but by and large, the church had a much better handle on this. The church was much stronger. We could say they had they had more maybe um, maybe more backbone. We could say the church was very very uh, focused and um, I would say more disciplined in many ways. They hadn't been as corrupted, but in our day and age. The cross is being eliminated. We don't preach about sin. Don't tell people how to live because that could hurt them. And also I want to say with this here this morning, let's not expect culture to behave. Culture is just culture. They'll do what they do. Let's not expect unbelieving pagan people to start living like Christians. They won't do that. That's not what we're called to change either. We're called to preach the gospel. They will do what they do. It's when it's in the church where the problem comes. True freedom is not what the culture is pushing. If there ever was slavery and bondage, that's our culture. True freedom is to live the lifestyle Jesus created us to live. What else he's saying? He says these people, not just about the sensuality that's going on. The next thing we see is they deny our Lord and Master. Our Lord, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
They deny him. There are even, there's a church in Toronto where the pastor is an atheist, believe it or not. Literally. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These people, everything is, what's good, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for you is true for you. It's pluralism, it's everything is okay. What it boils down to is, as one writer described, a buffet-style salad bar Christianity. Jesus never preached that. He never taught that. The disciples didn't. The apostles didn't. Instead, they preached the cross. And that's where true freedom is found. And I'm not trying to sound mad at our culture. Maybe saying, oh, the preacher's mad this morning. That's not my point. That I'm, at least I hope I'm not coming across as mad. I, I'm very, very adamant about this. That's true. Our culture has gone off the rails. It is what it is. We need to show compassion and love to a lost and hurting world, offering hope and, and pointing the way to repentance. We need to do that. But where it becomes a, a situation is when, when that becomes okay to call it Christian. It's not. We can't do that. He goes on, verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus wasn't playing games. He was not mediocre. When the people of Israel, we celebrated communion just a little while ago, it was celebrating the freedom from slavery in Egypt. That's what it was. And now it's celebrating the freedom from slavery to sin. That's what it is. Salvation in Christ, freedom from sin. And, and Jude says, remember that story. Jesus saved the people out of Egypt. He did that. But then some got destroyed later. We'll talk about it in a few more minutes. But not everybody made it to Canaan, to the promised land. Just because somebody gets baptized, just because somebody's a member, they may even go to church, that's not a sure sign that they are serving God. Jesus talks about it in Matthew in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at their fruits. What lifestyle do they live? Just to be rescued out of Egypt does not mean they're now all on the right path in their hearts. We find God saved the people out of Egypt, but not all people that were saved out of Egypt were actually saved people. They were destroyed. Jude goes further. He goes even deeper. Now he, in verse 6, he even draws the spiritual world into this. He says this in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We could talk for a long time about this. It's a very deep subject, which we won't go into. But just suffice to say this. God is in charge. He's in control. And he is a God of judgment. And just because it may look like we get away with it, nope, we won't. Not even the angels who left their position of authority, not even they are exempt from God's judgment on sin. His control is complete, overall, and total, and it will not fail. And then he goes back. He kind of goes in, in, all over the map here in verse 7. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You know that story in the book of Genesis. God was done with that city, with those cities. Lot, Abram's nephew, lived there. He wanted them, he wanted Lot and his family to be saved and Lot and his wife and two daughters made it out. Lot didn't, Lot's wife didn't make it very far, and then she was destroyed, but Lot and his two daughters were saved. 
but an illustration of God's judgment on what happens when people think they can get away with it. Let's just remember, people like that, they claim to be free, but really they're not. They're in bondage to sin. And this story cost them their lives. I think the question we should ask ourselves, what makes us think that the modern-day culture of our time is exempt? We'll get away with it. It won't affect us. We'll be fine. No, we won't be. We're not free as a culture. As Christians, we should be. And you and I cannot change them. And we cannot change this. But what we can do is allow God to change us. That we can do. And that we must do. It's not enough for our culture and these people who live these lives that they're okay with that. They want to draw others in as well. It wouldn't be suitable for the young ears in our congregation this morning, some of the stuff that's coming to me that I'm reading and studying and researching that is happening. It is horrifying on the moral scale what's actually going on in our culture as we speak. And it is people with political power who are furthering this. The church in Jesus Christ, in the time of the apostles, they faced these struggles. And Jude had the courage to write about it. And it's, it's in the Bible for a reason for us to learn from. Let's not allow our freedom to be compromised. It's not for sale. It's not to be bargained for, with and traded. Jude goes on, he says in verse 8, he says, Yet in like manner as Sodom and Gomorrah, these people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. In a nutshell, it's self-focused to the core. The pride and arrogance of them knows no bounds. They make up the rules as they go, inconsistent, wishy-washy, whatever feels good at the moment. The arrogance is unlimited. But then he goes back again into, uh, into uh, talking about angels. Let's, say, let's read verse 9. He says, verse 9 and 10. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But then he goes back again, these people. These people blaspheme that they do not understand, and they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He puts them in the category of animals. He's not even Michael, who would have, I don't know if he would have had the right to, but he was disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. That's a whole other sermon we could talk about. But he was talking to, with Satan, and he just says, the Lord rebuke you. Humility, steadfastness, focus on the truth. That's what the archangel Michael did. He continues on in verse 11. He says, Woe to them, these people, for they walked in the way of Cain. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel. And abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. He was that pastor guy who, who um, thought that he could with, get money for cursing Israel. Maybe he could curse Israel. He wasn't quite sure, and so he tried it. And It's another whole story. It was another sermon in itself. Balaam's heir, and the talking donkey. Remember that story? And it says, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was one of those guys who made it out of Egypt, didn't make it very far, and he got destroyed because of who he was, really. He was a rebellious guy, and there was others who followed him. 
This is so packed. It's just, just oozing with, with illustrations. It's just so packed, but we have to hurry through this. He verse, continues, verse 12, says, these mean these people are hidden reefs at your love feasts, at your communion celebrations, and as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds, uh-oh, shepherds feeding themselves, pastors who look out only for themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Not pretty. A very dark and gloomy picture of a, of a people group that have lost sight of who they are in Christ and are not contending anymore for the faith and have given up their freedom. Yes, even pastors fall into this category. Again, as I said before, I just want to focus more on my line of work, and it's true. There are pastors in our time who, who are not pastors because they love God's word or love God's people. It's easy. For a lot of pastors, that's all it is. It's a monthly paycheck or whatever, and it's easy. Pierre Burton, a very well-known journalist in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Back in the 60s, one of the mainline churches did a study. And they wanted Pierre Burton to do the study. He uh, he was not a Christian, but to do a study on the church in Canada. And it got a lot of negative feedback and flack and who knows what all. So he asked one pastor, why are you a pastor? He asked, I think it was Vancouver. He talked to this pastor. Why are you a pastor? This journalist asked, why are you a pastor? He says, the money, the God racket, you know. That's what he had to say. The God racket. Those are the kinds of people Jude is talking about. If there's no cross to carry, we're not free people. And the cross is not something that this one's covered here by this, by this curtain. But you know what I mean, a cross. If there's no cross to carry, then we're not a free people. Then we're slaves to something. But God's judgment will come. It won't rest. It will come. Let's continue reading. In verse 14 it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they've committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. These are the passages you don't like to read, but they're there. And Jude is saying, this is what we have to deal with. And if we don't, we will lose the freedom. We won't be part anymore of that body that we should be. Let's continue reading verse 17. He says, but you must remember, beloved, he's talking to the church, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, and devoid of the Spirit. They're empty. There's nothing there with them predicted let's continue reading but you beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the holy spirit keep yourselves in the love of god waiting for the mercy of our lord jesus christ that leads to eternal life 
I would say it this way. If we don't want to engage in the fight, if we don't want to engage in the struggle, then don't become a Christian. Because that's what it is. It's saying yes to Christ to be free from the bondage and slavery of sin, to walk with him, and then be on his team and walk in freedom. Or walk with a the culture. They're in bondage to slavery and to whatever else the next fad brings. And there will be a constant battle here. It's not easy. Let's read verse 22. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. There will be struggles. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by faith. It's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be messy, but that's okay. But then he closes with this wonderful statement in verse 24. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forevermore. He was not hopeless. He was not even discouraged. He had faith. He was free. Yes, it would be so much easier just talk about God's love, the grace, the good things. Or these are good things too, but the easy things. But it's not all like that. So I want to ask us this morning and leave us with this question. Are you free? Or is there something in life that holds you back to not really carry the cross? When I say carry a cross, it's a voluntary, deliberate, intentional decision to do the right thing for the glory of God in spite of what others may say and what it may cost. Are we free? I'm alarmed at how I see more and more, even pastors who have my position, are becoming slaves to the fear of people, slaves to the pressure of culture, slaves to the winds of political change in our community, it's concerning. I've been reading a book lately on, the, on, one, on a man who talks about this, um, the importance and the need for self-discipline to just hone in, to just focus in, and to not compromise. God loves us. That's why it's here. It's not like, what does he have, what, what's wrong with me now? What did I do wrong now? No, it's he wants to draw us in. So are we free in Christ? If we're free, how are we living it out? Free people are controlled by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and they follow Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning and for your word, for the letter of Jude in the New Testament. It's difficult reading to say the least. It's hard. It cuts. It hits. But also it reveals, tr it reveals truth and it shows us how serious you take our walk with you. You do not want us to compromise our freedom. You want us to walk in faithfulness and holiness in your presence. Thank you, Jesus. May you bless us this week. May we experience your joy. In your name we pray.